Welcome to Hope Labs, where we are connecting thought, word, and deed. And I am here with a dear friend, a great friend, and one of the most brilliant minds I know, uh, <laughs> Professor Chris Marsh. She yep. is uh, an associate professor at the University of Maryland College Park yes. in the Department of Sociology. How you doing? I am great, Professor Pastor Lee. I, Hello, know, Doctor. It's so funny because I call you Tony Lee. People that mm -hmm. I like, I call by first and last names. Mm -hmm. But when I'm talking in this kind of space, I want to be sure mm -hmm. and use the Pastor Lee. So, hello, Pastor Lee. It's a pleasure. Well, hello, Dr. Morris. <laughs> Offline, we can say you. Tony hey, Chris, Lee. Chris, what's Right, exactly. Like, here, exactly. Right. <laughs> so, look, I, I want to talk to you about a couple of things, a couple of your areas. Um, because with you over at the University of Maryland, um, shout out Fear the Turtle. I'm a grad. Yeah. I'm an alum. Go Terps. Yeah, go Terps. <laughs> Fear the Turtle. Um, but but I, I do want to talk to you because I, I, I recently had a conversation with the Chief of Police, and we yes. do a lot of work mm -hmm. um, yourself, myself, the Chief, um, in Prince George's County. Um, and just want to talk to you about some of the work you're doing. Um, with the police department in Prince George's County. If you could just kind of talk a little bit about kind of some of the initiatives you've been working on. Ah, so I have to start by saying I am a professor at the University of Maryland, and I never thought in a thousand years I'd be working with a police department. Wow. Um, it's both the most rewarding part of my academic career, mm -hmm. and it's also both rewarding and challenging mm -hmm. because I'm not uh, an officer. I didn't right. come from law enforcement. I come from an academic background. But it's so good to step out of that space that you know mm -hmm. and step into a new space and learn a whole new institution. Right. So I wanted to do some training. I was asked to do some training with the police department. Mm -hmm. But before I could do the training, I thought it, would, it was really important for me to spend time in the culture. I thought it would be disingenuous to put a training together without having spent time right. in the culture of the police department. Right. So I went through the Citizens Police Academy. I went on ride-alongs. We can mm -hmm. talk about um, how those were a little scary mm -hmm. and challenging and interesting and all of that. But I wanted to spend some time with the culture because if I was going to build a training program, I wanted to have a better understanding mm -hmm. of the culture. So I'm doing training for all 1,700 officers in Prince George's County. Wow. We're doing implicit bias training. Mm -hmm. So in a nutshell, what that basically means is that everybody has biases. We know that we have biases. But when you don't understand those biases, when you don't acknowledge those biases, when you don't hold those biases in check, it can be a bad interaction between a citizen of the county as well as between the police officer. Mm -hmm. So I want officers to understand the biases that they have, because we all have them. As a professor, I have biases. As you as a pastor, you may have biases. The problem is, is we don't acknowledge them. Right. So the training, all, uh, all of 2018, Mm -hmm. was to acknowledge those biases and figure out how to work past those. Mm -hmm. This year, I've come back to do training again. Mm -hmm. I'm a glutton for... Okay, hold on. Talk a little bit about the training because ah. you all use technology in this training. It's ah. really, really cool. <clears throat> Okay, so I'll tell you a little bit about the training. So it was all, we're on the in-service cycle for Prince George's County Police Department. Mm -hmm. They start in-service in March, and it goes mm -hmm. through November. So for 36 weeks, every Tuesday, we brought 50 officers to the University of Maryland College mm -hmm. Park. Um, and there were about three major components to the training. We had uh, virtual reality simulations that mm -hmm. we send the officers through. We had... Um, interactive exercises that we would talk about with the officers, mm -hmm. and then we had standard lecture format. Mm -hmm. For me, being a professor, it's important that you move beyond just a standard lecture format because students aren't going to be engaged with that, and you're going to lose half of your audience. So right. I wanted to make it as interactive as right. possible. So with the virtual reality simulations, we were trying to get the officers to understand some of the biases that they may possibly have by putting them through simulations. Mm -hmm. That's one thing to talk about biases you might have and have a conversation. Right. It's another thing to actually sit down and go through a virtual reality simulation. And what I mean by that is that we wanted to put goggles on the officers and have them play like almost like a video game. Right. And to see how they responded to different 
people in the community, right. whether it be a black person, a white person, a person with an accent, a person who was in a predominantly white or black space, how the officers responded to right. that. So that was kind of the virtual reality part. Okay, so how, how did you see how they responded? See, I want people to hear. You had them like plugged into stuff, right? Right. So what we did do is we had we had um, monitors on this. We had heart monitors, and we also were able to record their voice, like how their voice may have possibly changed, mm -hmm. depending on if they're pulling somebody over inside the Beltway or mm -hmm. outside the Beltway. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not from here. I'm from Los right. Angeles, and so I learned the whole notion of inside and outside the Beltway from you. Right. <laughs> right. So inside the Beltway is is the more I don't want to say hood, but hood-ish. I did not say right, that. Right. He did. Outside the Beltway, them folks got that money. Right. right. So there's so uh, now sociologically, let me say. Yes, yes. Say it sociologically. <laughs> you have this socioeconomic say. status. So inside right. inside the Beltway, you have may have people that are lower socioeconomic status, right. and outside the Beltway, you may have people that have a higher socioeconomic status. So there's three components to the training. Mm -hmm. One, we're doing virtual reality simulations. Mm -hmm. So with that, we have goggles that we can put the um, officers in right. and have them almost like play a video game to right. think. About about their biases and more nuanced kind mm -hmm. of ways. Mm -hmm. Then we have standard lecture format. That's kind of required to get some of the points across you want to get across. Right. Like we have a, I have a lecture on, a brief lecture on um, stereotypes. Like mm -hmm. Are there positive and negative stereotypes? Right. Right. And I kind of set the officers up. I'm like, give me some positive stereotypes. Right. They're like, well, Asians are good at math. Right. And I'm like, okay, what else? Give me some other ones. Blacks are good at sports. I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, so then we have a thoughtful conversation about how we just pigeonholed all Asians into a math track and all blacks into a um, sports track. Right. Right. And so right. I'm telling them all stereotypes are problematic and we shouldn't use stereotypes, especially right. when we're trying to talk about a whole group of people. Right. And then we have interactive exercises, exercises. One of the exercises that we do is a privilege walk. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you're familiar how, if you know how a privilege walk mm -hmm. works. Okay, let me tell you about it. So ideally what you want to do is stand the officers in a straight line you have them close their eyes and then you read off about 40 or so statements mm -hmm. and you're either supposed to take a step forward or you're supposed to take oh, a step yeah. back mm -hmm. based on mm -hmm. um, the statements so for example we say if you grew up with 50 or more books in your household mm -hmm. take a step forward right. On a side note, having 50 or more books in your household is a good indicator if you go to college. Right. So if you grew up in a two-parent household, take a step forward. Right. The assumption is growing up in a two-parent household with low conflict mm -hmm. is good for a child. I want to wow. stress low conflict because right. people often put that out there, but it's better for a child to grow up in a single-parent household with no conflict wow. than in a two-parent household with high conflict. Wow. So then we ask the question, are you able to show affection for your romantic partner in public? Mm -hmm. And so take a step forward right. without, without fear of violence. Right. So that's mm -hmm. the assumption that it, you could be like in a same-sex relationship. Mm -hmm. Or you could be in an interracial relationship mm -hmm. and you don't understand some of the privileges that you have. Mm -hmm. We know that white male privilege exists in America. Right. That is true. Right. But there's other privileges that we mm -hmm. just don't talk enough about. So mm -hmm. it really starts to open up the eyes of the officers mm -hmm. about other privileges that we just don't talk gotcha. enough about. Gotcha. Very cool. So I, I know some of your other work, not just around the policing kind of stuff, is that you have a book you're working on right now yes. that you about to come out soon, right? Yes. So talk a little bit about that. Okay, so I have a book with Cambridge University Press. Mm -hmm. The title Ooh, is... Ooh, Cambridge <laughs> University Press. I'm just saying it. Uh, so it's one of the best, best presses in the country. And mm -hmm. I don't say that to brag. I just mm -hmm. say that because I've been blessed to no, get, that, get that contract. No, okay, you can brag. Okay, well, I'm blessed and I'm also going to brag. Yeah. Um, so it's called the Love Jones Cohort, mm -hmm. the emerging black middle class that's single and living alone. Mm -hmm. As a demographer, here's what we know. We know that marriage rates are changing for all racial and ethnic groups. Mm -hmm. It's much more pronounced for blacks. So we have people that are never married and who will probably never be married, just looking mm -hmm. at the numbers. Mm -hmm. So 
I'm tired of having that conversation of why aren't blacks getting married, in particular, why aren't black women getting married? Mm -hmm. So what my book does is it tries to push the conversation beyond that and say, okay, the reality is we know demographically there's a subset of black America that are not going to get married. But what else do we know about them? Mm -hmm. So we also know in the social science literature there's this huge wealth gap that exists in America. Mm -hmm. So for me, I wanted to do an apples to apples comparison. I wanted to compare people that were middle class, who went to college, had degrees, were making good money mm -hmm. and had some sense of wealth they had a, they owned a home or had some kind of business I wanted to talk about them and talk about what they were doing right mm -hmm. years ago there was a statistic out there like um, one in three men will spend time in prison or something, right. Right? right so my research really focuses on the other two mm -hmm. right so that one's going to jail right, they, right. so that so they say right. but there's still a two other people that have done everything quote-unquote right but we mm -hmm. just don't know enough about them so that's why I insert myself as a scholar studying the black middle class so what we do know is that you have people that are single and living alone in the black middle class. In fact, it's the second largest household type in the black middle class, wow. behind parents with children. Wow. The second largest household type in the black middle class are now single and living alone. So the question becomes, from a sociological perspective, how is the black middle class going to be able to re reproduce itself? Because mm. class status is usually transferred from parent to child. Wow. So if the second largest household type, they're not married, they don't have children, who are they going to transfer their wealth to? Wow. So as a scholar, I'm trying to tease out that question because wealth is one of the key indicators that we need to kind of decrease this wealth gap, right? right? So what we're finding is that they're sending, they're giving money to their siblings, which translates into their nieces and nephews, mm -hmm. but they're also giving money to organizations that look like them and that they support. So that means they're giving it to their sororities, their fraternities, both men and, men and women are a part of the book, mm -hmm. and they're also giving to their churches. Mm. And so I think there needs to be a better infrastructure in place mm -hmm. where the churches can really gravitate to those people that are single and living alone and figure out how you can put scholarships together and say, I want a person who's single and living alone to get the scholarship behind me or so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So the church can really anchor this demographic trend that's happening in America. The other thing that I just went to Israel. Mm -hmm. uh, it was spring break and I needed a riding hiatus, so I decided I was just going to go to Israel because I can. Right, because I went, you can. And went to the Holy Sites while I was right, there right. and got baptized in the Jordan, okay. if I have you mm -hmm. to know. Mm -hmm. While I was there, I met a guy who wrote a book. He wrote a book called Happy Singlehood. Mm -hmm. And one of the, his argument is that people who have never been married, mm -hmm. um, when they age, they are happier because they put infrastructure and networks in place so that when they age, they, already, they won't be lonely. Mm -hmm. People that are ever married, those are people who are widowed, separated, and divorced, mm -hmm. when they age mm -hmm. and they have a, a somebody, their spouse dies, mm -hmm. they're not quite as happy because they don't have that network, network in place so they are alone. Mm -hmm. They got married not to be alone, but Whoa. they find themselves alone. Right. So I thought his book was well written. He did a really great job. I said to him, I said, listen though, um, you're talking about this from a very white perspective, right. right? And I think what you really need to understand is that Given the, the structure of black family, mm -hmm. there are people that have never been married and single in black family for many, many years. Right. And they built a network in place right. so that you can come along as a scholar 30 years later and talk about how white people mm -hmm. are happy with their singleness. Right. But you're going to have to give respect to black folks because black folks really paved the way for you. Right. And I told them, I said, you know, we gave you Elvis. <laughs> right? <laughs> you ain't taking singlehood. You're right. going to have to say that blacks are really the pioneers mm -hmm. about um, singleness and that, that show people mm -hmm. how to do it in a happy kind of way and mm -hmm. embrace their singleness. But what I did appreciate about the conversation that I had with him, I don't know if you're familiar with this whole notion of we work. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he's done work across the world, okay. um, in America and in other countries. 
And so there's this thing called We Live, mm -hmm. where you have single people that are now kind of like living together and having a sense of a community. Oh, wow. Right? And part of the reason why you do that is because, you know, people want to have interactions. Right. You want to have substantive interactions. And getting back to the point that I was making earlier about people that are ever married in their age, they find themselves alone, they don't mm -hmm. have somebody to, like, work with and be a part of their um, network. What I think the black church can really do, mm -hmm. I think the black church can really anchor its leverage in the community and say, we're going to be like a network where people that have never been married mm -hmm. or people that have ever married mm -hmm. looking for someone to maybe rent out a room in mm -hmm. their house or something, mm -hmm. a college student who always needs some money. Right. The college student puts an application through the church. Mm -hmm. The person who's ever married and older puts an application mm -hmm. through the church. You almost have like a speed dating session to find out who you really work well with mm -hmm. and who can move in and live with you. And mm -hmm. I think the church would be a great place to do something like that. Wow. And so what would be some other thoughts around just kind of ways the church can connect or interact as well? I think the church also needs to think about, um, are you talking about that in particular or just in general? Just in general. So I definitely... And, and, and just church in general. Black church, we have to understand that there is a... A subset of black America that's living alone mm -hmm. and some people don't want to live alone so right. we should be able to broker that relationship and figure out how to bring people together right. I think the other thing the black church really needs to think about doing is thinking mm -hmm. about wealth and how we as a church mm -hmm. can help think about how people in the community and in the church can acquire wealth. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always have to be home, mm -hmm. especially given what we know about that whole housing crisis. Right. The millennials are a little apprehensive about buying homes, mm -hmm. but the church, I think, can, can be a really good institution that can help think about other ways that we can acquire wealth. Does that mean we put our monies together and we build some kind of like a we work kind right. of space or mm -hmm. something. The church can do a really good job of bringing people together that have money and think about how they can build, start to turn their money into wealth. The church also needs to think about not ignoring those other, the people that have never married. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to have a singles ministry. Okay, mm -hmm. that's good. That's right. fine. And I'm not right. indicting the singles ministry, right. but we're more than just our marital status. Right. So right. if you have a person that's never been married, doesn't have any children, has a house, a business, and assets, how can the church work with that person to make sure that the black middle class does reproduce itself, not in the traditional kind of way, but in the innovative kind of way that the black America is always known to be and will always be? Right, right. Wow, that's amazing. Now help me, um, and, and I'll let you go, but um, how are you finding kind of some of the racial disparities impacting the black middle class, especially around, say, whether it's wages or those kinds of things? Yeah, so that's a, a not as positive conversation okay. because across the board, every indicator. So typically, when mm -hmm. scholars are studying middle class, they mm -hmm. use education, income, occupation. Mm -hmm. Particularly because of black America and the fragility of the black middle class, saying, mm -hmm. suggesting that they're one or two paychecks away from poverty, mm -hmm. now when you talk about the black middle class, it's good to include some kind of wealth indicator. Mm -hmm. So on all of those, black America is at the bottom. Wow. And it continues to be the case. It's been the case since the since the beginning of since data has been collected, and it still is the case now. Now, here's the thing. I had a conversation with someone just the other day because I also in my book I talk about where singles live because mm -hmm. you don't have any children, you right. don't have a spouse. So, do you want to live in a suburban neighborhood with good schools? Is that what you're looking for, right. or you want to live kind of in a place where there's more social life and so on and so forth? Mm -hmm. Here's the reality. I, as a black middle class person, decided to live in Prince George's County. Mm -hmm. I wanted to buy books and stuff for little black and brown kids in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I could have, if you took my house, picked my house up and put it in Montgomery County, it would be twice as much as right. what it's worth. Right. Right. But I had to make a decision whether or not I wanted to be in my neighborhood and see other people that look like me, other professionals, or if I wanted to be in Silver Spring or Montgomery County mm -hmm. 
and, ha and make more money on my house. Mm -hmm. That shouldn't be a decision that I have to make on an individual level. Mm -hmm. There are structural forces in place where my house should not be valued any more or any less if it's in Prince George's County or in... Exactly. But you're forcing me to make that decision, ignoring the structural forces that just because my zip code is two, whatever zip code it is, my house is valued less. And, and I... And some of that it, it connects to redlining and some of that connects to just some historical kinds of things around housing stock, etc. Right. And right. some of the racial implications. Right. Right. Wow. Right. And I do think that the, the, the church, I don't know exactly how the church can work with that, but I think the church is like, we demand that the property values are the same in this community mm -hmm. as it is in that community mm -hmm. over there. Right. And if we hit it from every single angle, because it's, structu it's structural. Right. And right. I have right. to, it's forcing me to make individual decisions based on a structural force. Right. So I think the church might be able to help out with that as well. Wow, that's amazing. You're like, <laughs> always blow my mind. And so, I, I, I get, well, go ahead. And then, of course, you know, if you want to talk about some of the work I've done in South Africa, we can talk about that, too, on, so, a, on the next podcast. So, we, we can talk about that, because she also did a whole piece comparing the black middle class in the United States and in South Africa. And, 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 just, and just a quick subtext mm -hmm. to that. There are so many similarities, then mm -hmm. there are differences. To be very honest, uh, Pastor Lee, when mm -hmm. I went to South Africa, I was like, let me teach these South Africans something about the black middle class. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, so we have American privilege, too. We think that we know everything, right. and everything stops and starts in America. Right, right, but there right. are some really stellar scholars in South Africa, and I'm mm -hmm. a better scholar because I dropped that American privilege when I got to South right. Africa right. and learned from the South African mm -hmm. scholars. But here's the thing. They're just a couple years post-apartheid. Mm -hmm. And they are dealing with some of the same exact things that we are dealing with here. Wow. And we're 50 years post-civil right. rights. Right. Wow. So, so what does that say about us? Right. Or what does that say yeah, about that, them? Wow. Right? That's, wow. A, that's a philosophical conversation we need to unpack. Wow. But we're 50 years post-civil uh, post rights. And still dealing and, with some of the same stuff. And they're dealing with wow. So let me ask you this question in relation to that. So as you're talking about the black middle class, and, and I want to know, is this just anecdotal? kind of what I've seen, or is this really uh, the numbers showing this out, but uh, often what I've seen is people in the black middle class um, don't necessarily always have the luxury. Their families who may not be in the middle class ah. end up needing them to help stabilize. So the black middle class then isn't just able to just kind of keep building in the way that you think middle class people do, right. but they're always kind of also having to be a support net uh, um, for kind of those members of their families and their loved ones who have not been able to get to that kind of status? Oh, wait, I want to answer that question mm -hmm. in two different ways. Absolutely. Yes, okay. we do find that to be the case. And to take that one step further, I do, as a demographer, I'm really interested in residential segregation, where mm -hmm. people live and why they live where mm -hmm. they live. What we know about black middle class is that they live in close proximity to the mm. black poor. And so there's, there's a whole bunch of literature out there. There's, like, there's this whole spatial dynamic that's going on. So you have white middle class in mm -hmm. the outer circle, you mm -hmm. have black middle class in the middle circle, then you mm -hmm. have the black poor in the middle. Mm -hmm. So being exposed, being a broker between black, white America mm -hmm. middle class mm -hmm. and poor blacks, that puts the black middle class in another kind of precarious situation because mm -hmm. they're in close proximity to both. Right. So sometimes they may fall back into mm -hmm. the black poor, and they sometimes they fall forward into white America. But you have to understand wow. you're kind of in between right. that spot. So that's one kind of tension that's happening mm -hmm. in black America. The mm -hmm. other tension, I think you're right on point, where you, we're just kind of starting to get our footing, but we have an extended family who doesn't have their footing, mm -hmm. so we have to go back and help them. Mm -hmm. But their help, us helping them is taking money out of our own pocket. Right. One example that I love to give over and over again, how many times have you been on a plane 
and they tell you to secure your mask first right. before you help somebody else. Right. Black America isn't, middle class black Americans mm -hmm. aren't really able to secure their footing mm -hmm. before the larger community is actually looking at them and get, asking for some kind of help and asking support. Asking for some air. Right. Asking for some oxygen. <laughs> yeah, right, like, let me secure yeah. my mask first. Right. And then the second part of that, how I want to answer it, I want to take it globally for a second. Mm -hmm. So we know there's a black tax that exists in mm -hmm. America. The way we interpret the black tax in America is kind of like we have to work twice as hard mm -hmm. for half of the credit. Mm -hmm. Or if we know we go buy a house, our interest rate is going to be higher than the next person. Right. Right. When I was in South Africa on my Fulbright, yeah, I threw, I threw that in there. Uh -huh, Scott, uh -huh, uh -huh. I'm sorry. So when I was in South Africa on my Fulbright, black tax came up too. Mm. But it came up in the context you're talking about, where the larger black, where the black middle class has to give back to their larger family. That's oh, their black their tax. Their black taxes yes. are giving back to their larger yes. family. Yes, yes. So we both got a black tax. Right, right, right. We, right. May, we may interpret it differently, but right. at the end of the day, it affects our bottom dollar and it affects our ability right. to build wealth. So we get to the same, we get to the same outcome, just right. differently. So last thing, and thank you for this time, this has been great. Um, last thing I want to ask is, so with the black middle class and with the aging of boomers, mm -hmm. um, what are you seeing as far as the black middle class having to step up and be caregivers? Uh, so I don't do a lot of work on caregiving, mm -hmm. but I think it does get back to the point that I was making earlier mm -hmm. that you have people that are aging right. and they need help. Right. So think about it this way. A man who's 65, or mm -hmm. let's, let's age him a little more. Let's say he's 75. Right. He's living alone. Right. Right. He's got a nice little house. His wife died and it's mm -hmm. just him. Right. You also have a 25-year-old college student that can't, ain't got a pot to piss in, right? right? Or right. a blend to throw it out. I hope I can mm -hmm. say that on this mm -hmm. podcast. You already did. Okay, well, I said it. So you have a 25, you have a 25-year-old student that doesn't have, a, that don't have right. a lot of resources, right? right? right. Mm -hmm. So why can't the 65-year-old mm -hmm. or 75-year-old hook up with the 25-year-old? They live together. The 75-year-old the man charges the guy, the young man, right. a little bit of rent. Right. But he, the young man can also do light grocery shopping, light right. cooking around the house, right. Right. and right. just be a support system for right. the older person. Right. 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 And we have to understand that black America, everybody's aging. Right. People are living longer, right. mm -hmm. and sometimes they're not, they're living by themselves. Right. And I think we have to, as um, scholars, as the black church, mm -hmm. we have to acknowledge that. There are students that are in college that are struggling. Right. There right. are people that have got these big old houses that are living by themselves. Why aren't the, why isn't the church mm -hmm. connecting the two of them? Why is the church not connecting them? Well, the church know. should be connecting them, especially... Especially because in case something goes wrong mm -hmm. and that little 25 year old is just crazy mm -hmm. <laughs> or that 75 year old is a problem, right. there's another level of uh, accountability. accountability. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the black church absolutely could be doing that. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Professor, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. You are the Thanks. greatest uh, ever. I'm trying my um, best. <laughs> Professor Chris Marsh, University of Maryland. Thank you. I appreciate you. Always, always, always a pleasure, Tony. Uh, Pastor Lee. <laughs>